Hi, Flies. I'm Dalton. And I'm Sam. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. Make sure you're following us on social media at Fly on the Wall Pod. And you can also get in touch with us through our email at Fly on the Wall Podcast at gmail.com. Dalton, I don't know about you, but I had a great time talking with our guest this week. Why don't you tell our listeners who's in store? Sure thing, Sam. Today's guest is Adi Sothi, a Republican political operative, most recently the NRSC Deputy Regional Field Director in the 2021 Georgia runoff election, and Chief of Staff for the Young Republicans National Federation. And with that, let's jump right into the interview. So Adi, thanks for joining us on Flying the Wall. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, fellas. So um, first off, how did you first get involved in politics? When did you realize you wanted a career in this? Well, I was a college student, just like you guys. I uh, had no real interest in politics at that time, uh, but I got involved with student government on campus, and uh, I found uh, interest in that and the politics behind it and running for different things, and I didn't think of it as politics initially, but I had a friend point out to me that I might like politics and might find it interesting if I was to try and navigate my way into a career in that, and he connected me to his mother, who happened to be a judge that was running for re-election in a circuit court seat in Wayne County, Michigan, which is the Detroit area. Uh, so very local race, nothing crazy, but it happened to be in 2010 uh, when there was a Republican wave election all throughout this country. Uh, and we took back the House of Representatives and also in particularly Michigan, where I'm from, uh, we ended up having a governor, lieutenant governor, secretary of state, attorney general, state house, state senate, and nine out of 14 members of Congress, Republican overnight, just like that. And I remember thinking, who are these Republicans? They really know how to win. And that's kind of where it all started. So after that, I ended up um, at the time being in a medical program where uh, for those that are not familiar, there are programs that exist in this country where you can get into med school right out of high school in a direct program, direct med program where uh, it's either six, seven or eight years. Uh, and I ended up in one at, uh, at this university called Wayne State University in Detroit uh, that had an eight year medical program at the time called MedStart. And uh, so I was maybe a couple of years into that program. Uh, but decided to pursue my political science interests uh, after catching the bug, as they say, and then transferring to the University of Michigan, where I studied political science and did a, a master's as well and continued on with some of the student government stuff. But it uh, navigated me into more full time political work. And, um, you know, that that kind of took me the rest of the way. So. Yeah. So as you mentioned, you worked on campaigns at every level of government. Uh, from city council in Toledo to the Senate race, even in my home state of Missouri. What changes and what stays the same as you go up in scale in these races? Well, personalities stay the same and you meet the same kinds of people in a different way. I mean, their stories are different in, uh, in terms of where they're from or what their backgrounds are. But I think the, the folks uh, and the issues that uh, matter to them uh, overlappingly coincide with people all across this country, which is why people are able to find uh, interest in one particular political party versus another uh, and uh, a lot of times, uh, you know, you can find ways to relate to people, whether that's in the boot hills in Missouri, in Cape Girardeau, like I said, when I was there um, working on the, the Holly campaign, uh, working for the RNC at the time, or in Toledo, Ohio, which is a big time union town, uh, where you're working predominantly with these uh, big union bosses and how to navigate the campaign world that way. But um, people are much more similar than I think they realize. And I think that's where it was, uh, it was actually a lot of uh, fun to be able to get to know people all across this country and get to work with them. Uh, from the city council perspective, I actually think when you get so personal in these local races or even at state house level or something like that, you know, every vote really matters in some states. I mean, with the constituencies that you see in certain state house races, 
it's no different than running from city, running for city council uh, in another part of the country. And in Toledo, um, the city council race was an at-large city council race that I managed in 2013 for a candidate uh, who basically was running what I thought to be kind of like a state senate race with the amount of money that we raised in the constituency that she was trying to win over in, a, in, in such a large city, uh, state uh, citywide. And, uh, you know, it was very personal. Everybody knew each other and everybody wanted to get down dirty, uh, especially even on the political side of things. So what it made it less personal on these like Senate races and governor's races that I've experienced or even congressional campaigns that I've touched. Uh, you don't always necessarily know everybody so personally. And that's where, uh, you know, people will like you or dislike you more so based uh, solely on your platform and, uh, you know, your identity in that regard. And that's why, um, you know, sometimes you find criticism amongst national political leaders because they don't necessarily have those personal relationships that you would at the local or state level. Uh, and, you know, sometimes that leads them to be out of touch, uh, especially if they've been doing it for too many years. Yeah. And so speaking of personal relationships, um, I mean, you've probably knocked on a lot of doors, met a lot of different people and worked in a lot of different offices. So any um, favorite moments from your time working in politics, either in the field or as a staffer for uh, for political movers and shakers? Uh, definitely some crazy moments in my career. Uh, maybe the most unique moment of my story uh, that I didn't even realize, which is really a testament to recognizing that you never know who you're going to meet in your life that's going to change the course of your life. Just having done local politics when I was in college, entering grad school uh, at the University of Michigan, I ended up getting involved with my local congressional district committee, which is uh, really just in the state of Michigan, a 25-person advisory committee that's elected within your congressional district caucuses when you're a grassroots uh, precinct delegate and, you know, to become a precinct delegate, it's like, you know, you, you get elected within your precinct and in your, in your individual kind of area within your, within your city. So very local stuff. Um, but ultimately I got to be one of the 25 people on my local congressional district committee in Michigan's 11th district. There are 14 congressional districts in Michigan right now. So I was just one of the people in one of the 14 districts. It just so happened that being involved with that local committee where I'm from in Novi, Michigan happened to uh, be affiliated with many key leaders, including at the time in 2013 to 2014, a also local leader within the party named Rana McDaniel, who was from Northville, Michigan. And she was also just another member of the 25 person congressional district committee. And for those that are avid political folks, uh, you now know that she has uh, went on from that role to eventually become the state chair of the Michigan Republican Party. And then from there, she was selected by the president and uh, then ultimately elected to be the RNC chairwoman. And she's now in her third term as RNC chairwoman. And she just happens to be my neighbor, like lives 10 minutes down the street from me in Northville, Michigan. So kind of crazy. I uh, didn't know that I was going to meet her uh, through this random interaction, my local uh, party apparatus. Uh, but I got a chance to work with her. Uh, in different uh, capacities at the local level than also at the state level, because when she ran and was elected to be the chair of the Michigan Republican Party, uh, I also was uh, asked to consider the idea of running to be one of uh, the six vice chairs for the Michigan Republican Party. And uh, with the support of my congressman, since I had supported him on his uh, first election to Congress, uh, he's no longer a congressman now, but Congressman Dave Trott at the time was a two-term congressman. 
and then also the lieutenant governor of our state who supported me at the time named Brian Cowley. Uh, with their endorsements, I finished grad school and was 24 years old and ran a statewide campaign at our convention uh, and was elected to be one of the six vice chairs of that Michigan Revolving Party under then Michigan Chair Rana McDaniel. And for those that don't know too much about her, her middle name is Romney because she is Mitt Romney's brother's daughter. So the world collides in crazy ways. And obviously, uh, you know, she has done a great job as the, uh, the chair of the Republican Party uh, nationally. And because of that relationship that I maintained with her from just doing local politics in my home community, I also had the opportunity to follow her to the RNC during the 2018 midterms where I where I served as the national director of Asian Pacific American engagement uh, during that cycle uh, and had the opportunity to travel to 20 states and put on over 100 events all throughout the country, uh, as well as go to places like Missouri, as mentioned earlier. But I mean, you know, it was a tremendous opportunity. And, uh, you know, to think that I just met this uh, future face of the Republican Party casually going to these committee meetings in my local hometown you know, that's like a, that's a dream come true for many politically minded people, I would say. So that's a perfect transition into our next uh, section, because we wanted to know, how did you transition from your prior work into Asian American Pacific outreach specifically? Like, did you see a need? Did someone call on you? How did that work? And, and how did it go? So myself, personally, I grew up uh, in the United States uh, as a active member of uh, the Indian American community. My parents were born in India. They came by way of India to England and ultimately the United States uh, to Michigan, where uh, there happens to be uh, the 12th largest population of Indian Americans in a metropolitan metropolitan area in the country, which is the metropolitan, metropolitan area of Detroit. Detroit is not the 12th largest city in America. Maybe uh, used to be a top 10 now, I don't think it cracks the top 30, but to think about that from a perspective that there is that many Indian Americans, particularly in that community, kind of showcases uh, the number of people that you would have interacted with or gotten to know in a community of that, of that uh, size. And so um, growing up in that community, you know, obviously I cared about it and understanding now, uh, having navigated my way into American politics in different spaces, that there isn't always, in both sides, both sides of the aisle, I'm saying there isn't always... Um, a direct link or opportunity for those of you know immigrant communities and backgrounds, particularly within the Asian Pacific American community, because they're so new to this country to have navigated the way into American politics. And so, I saw a need for it, particularly because of the areas that I'm from and the state that that I'm in, but also because I just wanted to see more people that look like me in in the political world, in the political arena, and. Um, so along with doing traditionally minded work, you know, knocking doors, making phone calls, working on campaigns, things that anybody would do, uh, I did take it upon myself, particularly in my congressional district committee, where at the time uh, we had the second largest population of Indian Americans in a Republican held seat in the country. It was Barbara Comstock's congressional district in Virginia and then Michigan's 11th congressional, congressional district that was uh, ultimately uh, held by Congressman Dave Trout for two terms. So um, I ended up being willing, more than willing, uh, to not only, of course, uh, do traditional campaign work, but also help many politicians and political leaders in the Republican Party navigate the Indian American community. And then that led to me being more broadly focused on other coalitions, not only the Asian American communities, uh, but also 
uh, all the coalitions that were affiliated with the uh, Michigan Republican Party, and that included veterans, that included um, the youth community, that included um, the folks that are that are dedicated to Second Amendment rights. And so uh, we even had a coalition for the deaf community in Michigan, and there was a large contingent of Republican-minded deaf people. And so uh, it was uh, very interesting to work with all these different uh, folks that I was able to work with when I was one of the vice chairs for the state party. And so, you know, I found it important that uh, the party did focus its energy and attention on, you know, working with all the different coalitions, because the way that I view American politics, unlike other countries that have democracies, is that you really have many parties. And then, you know, these parties run and they get elected to the parliament usually. And within the parliament, they build coalitions depending on the majorities that they need to create in order to create a government. In America, I feel as if we do uh, have just mostly a two-party system, but within those two major parties, um, you effectively create your coalition within the party before you then run on the general election ballot. Uh, and that's where coalition building efforts are very important. And so um, because I was able to do that at my congressional district level to an extent, and then also do that at the statewide level uh, during the 2016 election cycle, which, by the way, Michigan only delivered a victory by 10,704 votes in 2016 to ultimately deliver a Republican president. And uh, in Michigan, it was the first time uh, since 1988 that a uh, Republican was able to get elected in Michigan uh, on the presidential, on a president, in a presidential election year. And so I think every coalition really did matter. And I think that particularly the Asian American uh, and Indian American communities uh, had a large uh, impact on the outcome of the election. And so um, for the chairwoman who was picking her team in at the national level, uh, once she was selected by the president to be the RNC chairwoman, uh, she had seen me do a lot of this work, just just naturally wanting to do it because I was passionate about it, passionate about my, my community that I grew up around. And... Uh, being able to then take on the uh, initiative of representing the broader Asian Pacific American community in America, which constitutes for about seven to eight percent of the American population, uh, and then represent their voice from the Republican Party's perspective as a political operative uh, working at the party headquarters. I mean, it was a tremendous honor. And uh, at the time when I navigated my way into that role with her help, of course, I was 27 years old, traveling the country, uh, you know, living a political person's dream, I guess, <laughs> political operative's dream, I guess. And and um, and I really met a lot of great people, I mean, of all different walks and all different backgrounds. And I really got to understand people from, you know, every background, including the Chinese-American, Japanese-American, Korean, Hispanic, or Korean, uh, not Hispanic, but Korean, Filipino, Vietnamese, uh, Cambodian, a lot of smaller countries, Laos. Um, ended up getting a chance to go to Taiwan when I worked at the RNC uh, on a delegation trip that I had a chance to lead. So really getting to know a lot of these people and then working, uh, you know, I, I mentioned the Hispanic community. The reason it came to mind is because while you're there at the headquarters of the party, you're also working with your counterparts who are the director of Hispanic uh, engagement or African-American engagement or urban or women or youth or veterans. Uh, and, um, and so, you know, in the process of that, you're really thinking about how to diversify and grow a political party and I think that the Democrats do similar work. Uh, and I do know some of my counterparts uh, that have done this type of work. And um, yeah, and then, you know, I think there is always a need for it because uh, in this country that we live in, greatest country in the world, 
you have the most diverse population of people with so many different backgrounds and not everybody speaks the exact uh, same language. I mean, of course, I don't mean literally language. I mean, like, obviously people speak English, most people speak English, but like the language of life, if you want to put it that way, where the perspectives are different, their experiences are different. When you come from a different country, you have a different understanding of the way that democracy and electoral politics work. You have a different understanding of what your elected officials are supposed to be doing for you. Uh, and then ultimately what we've seen since then is the growth of the congressional delegation of uh, Republicans who are of Asian American origin that I was able to work with some of these people in 2018 in that election cycle that have now come back in 2020 as members of Congress, particularly I'd like to give a shout out to Congresswoman Michelle Steele and also Congresswoman uh, Young Kim, both from Orange County, California and two different congressional districts, both Korean American women with great uh, stories of navigating the way to America and ultimately navigating, navigating the way to the United States Congress as Republicans. And so, um, you know, and then there's also uh, our representative from American Samoa, uh, Amada Radawagon, she's also a Republican, Asian American woman. Uh, can't forget Amada, she's a staple in the Asian American community as well. But I mean, I'm just saying all that, uh, say that the, the demographic of Congress is changing, the elect elected officials are shifting, uh, and, our, and our country is continuing to become more and more diverse, and, it, and it's important to make sure that we're recognizing that. Yeah, so zooming in on um, particularly doing outreach into communities that maybe haven't been spoken to before, how do you find the issues that resonate within each community, and how do you bring the conservative message uh, to a more diverse and broader base? When you think about the electorate, not particularly within, within even the like coalitions or the minority communities, uh, most people are single-issue voters. Most people care about one issue more than every other issue, or most people literally only care about one issue. So thinking about it from that perspective, uh, you know, even if you break it down to like the evangelical community, I mean, they're going to care about pro-life values. Uh, or if you care about, uh, if you go to many people uh, in certain communities that are very dedicated to gun rights and Second Amendment rights, I mean, that's what they're going to ask about, um, you know, on the campaign trail. Uh, with particular Asian American communities, for example, just from my experience, many of them care about education. A lot of them are small business owners and they care about uh the tax policy and, and uh, you know, the way that uh, uh, small businesses are, are able to continue to grow and uh, succeed in this country, which uh, in many cases, the Republican Party has uh, policies that are going to support that uh, and their interests. And uh, when it comes to education, for example, um, there was uh, a big lawsuit that uh, is still in motion uh, that is uh, happening right now uh, against Harvard University with a conglomerate of Asian American organizations that are pushing for uh, more uh, racial equality in the uh, in the system that we now have uh, that uh, currently has discriminatory practices uh, towards Asian Americans who are applying for colleges and, and universities. And so uh, I think that the Republican Party has been more supportive of that than the Democrats. And that's like something that you're seeing actively happening uh, within Asian American circles and, and then them recognizing that the Republicans seem to be more in line with their views on that. Uh, but of course, there are many other issues. You can talk about immigration. Uh, you can talk about health care. Uh, but in a lot of instances, uh, the Republican Party seems to resonate more so with a lot of these different Asian American groups. And it's about figuring out what it is that matters to them and, and, uh, and helping them navigate some of those issues. And so I found that to be very exciting work because, you know, you're really getting into the weeds and learning about people and their backgrounds and why they think the way that they think and what their background was uh, when they came from country X 
and what uh, their parents were doing um, in country X before they came here, you know? So, uh, and then there's also a lot of languages and a lot of people are, you know, bilingual in a lot of these communities or trilingual or even more sometimes. Uh, you and I grew up speaking uh, an Indian language called Telugu uh, and I'm still very fluent uh, in that language. Uh, I then learned some Spanish in college, but I really would probably be more uh, capable of speaking Telugu because I learned it at a young age. Uh, so uh, I think that there are a lot of people that really value that. And uh, those are really only experiences that you can have if you also share them to an extent. And I think that's what made me more capable of navigating the space and being a good leader within the party to be able to talk to the people, not in my particular language or something, but, um, but to understand them and the way that they grew up and uh, the values that they, that they carry that, uh, you know, resonate with the party. Yeah, that's a perfect transition into that exact idea. Um, and this, just zooming out a little bit. Um, what is the greatest challenge that you think the GOP is facing in future elections and where does the party need to work on its message? Right now, the, uh, the party, after uh, the loss of a presidential election, uh, although it was a very exciting election in its own way uh, with COVID and all these things that were happening and the new dynamics of mail-in votes and so many different movements uh, and Donald Trump being a uniquely profiled candidate that will leave his mark on American history forever. It'll be a case study in electoral politics in America for the rest of our time and then and then some. Uh, I think that when you lose an election and then also lose the Senate and then also don't find a way to win back the House of Representatives, although we did make gains in the, the House, uh, you have to regroup and you have to bring the different factions of the party together to be able to figure out a, a way to have a path, pathway to then win again. Uh, and uh, I think that it's going to be crucial to lean on the messaging of the party and showcase that uh, regardless of what your opinions are of Donald Trump, he was able to build a 74 million person coalition and uh, create the largest coalition of uh, voters in any presidential reelection campaign in the history that included a larger uh, contingent of minority voters in both the Hispanic, uh, well, in the Hispanic, African-American and Asian-American communities, uh, more so than any other Republican in the last 50 years. Uh, and then you're also looking at the fact that we were able to work with and get this garnered the support of blue collar workers in, in various communities uh, throughout the country. I mean, Ohio used to be a battleground. Florida used to be a battleground. Those are pretty much handover states for the Republicans in these past couple of elections, uh, even with governor's races and statewide races. And it's important to analyze what was able to help the state move in that direction uh, when Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin shifted for the Republican Party in 2016, but shifted back in 2020. Uh, and then what's going on in Georgia? I mean, uh, you know, we had briefly mentioned this uh, in, in our previous conversation at some point, but I was down in Georgia for the uh, the runoff election that was happening there. And, you know, you saw for the first time in recent history, I mean, uh, Georgia ended up uh, becoming a blue state for the presidential election and then also delivering two Democrat senators, which um, just from looking at it from the outside looking in, I mean, you had two incumbent Republicans, uh, two older people uh, who uh, came from some level of wealth, and uh, one of which was an older white man. The other one was an older white woman, uh, maybe middle-aged, just to say, to be respectful of her. Uh, but then the Democrats ran a black black reverend, 
and a 33-year-old Jewish American man. And uh, I'm not uh, so dedicated to identity politics as much as I'm dedicated to quality candidates who uh, have good credentials that are going to come in and do the job and do it well and be able to make a difference for our country. But I think that in this particular instance, the identities of these individuals was able to also help them get through the electoral process. And now that we have a person like Stacey Abrams in Georgia, as a black woman who is Ivy League educated, that has been uh, an elected official in the past in the state Senate in Georgia, who's very popular and prominent in the state, she's going to be a force to be reckoned with in 2022 in Georgia. And again, that's a state that I didn't think uh, for a long time had the capability of being a democratic state, being a democratic state, or being a democrat state. And so, as the tides are shifting, I think the party needs to re-engage with their message and focus in on making sure that we can keep the coalition that we have created in a way that we are able to move forward and continue to build upon it, uh, whether Donald Trump is at the top of the ticket or not. And although he was able to bring a lot of new voters and a lot of new people into the party, we need to find a way to keep them and keep building upon that. And uh, there are leaders in the Republican Party who are dedicated to this, uh, who are looking into figuring out how to navigate the messaging, but also how to, you know, be the next generation of political folks within the party. And there are many diverse leaders, many many military folks and Asian American leaders, as I mentioned, there's still people like Nikki Haley in the party who people talk about regularly uh, as an Indian American, former governor and cabinet uh, level appointee in the Trump administration. And, uh, and then, you know, you have Florida Floridians excited about the diversity in their state and uh, Ohio's got a new Senate race coming up uh, with, with Senator Portman deciding that he's not seeking reelection. So, That'll definitely create a rumble in the party to see who becomes the next nominee. And I think whoever is the next nominee will likely be the next senator in Ohio, depending on the, the demographics and, and the candidacy. But I do think that that's likely the case. So who's going to be this next new wave of politicians that come into the party in 2022? Are we going to take back the House? I think the answer is yes. And if so, with a new speaker, which could be Kevin McCarthy, uh, would likely be Kevin McCarthy, who's you know, a relatively younger political leader from California, uh, what is the party going to look like once he uh, is able to get into that role, assuming that it happens for him? Where is the direction of the party being taken and how do we continue to engage with the younger generations of people as the older generations continue to get older and uh, move on from this earth? Uh, we have new people that we need to be, be able to engage with and it's not as common. It's, in fact, it's frowned upon. It's unpopular. It's, uh, it's chastised. It's almost uh, shamed in many ways. Um, in the younger generations of America, particularly on, you know, certain college campuses and uh, elite institutions and private schools like Georgetown and other spaces like the University of Michigan, where I went to school, uh, where you almost get shamed for being a Republican. And, you know, how do we open up that dialogue and allow people to be more open, more open minded so that we can actually tell them that it's OK to have some conservative values and it's OK to believe what you believe in. And here's why, without thinking that they can't get a date on a Friday night. Yeah. So, um, so talking about you know, young Republicans and and the future of the party, um, you know, you've done some work with the Young Republicans Federation as chief of staff. So, who are these young Republicans, and what do they believe, and how does the party connect with them? So, the Young Republican National Federation, or YRNF, is one of the three official affiliate organizations of the Republican National Committee. The other two are the College Republican National Committee, which is uh, more probably relevant to your interests, and then also. 
the National Federation of Republican Women is also a recognized organization. And why uh, are those important organizations? Because they represent women, young people at the college age, and young people that are 40 and under. And that's what the YRNF represents, people who are 40 and under, who aren't necessarily college age. Or sorry, who aren't necessarily in college. Um, college age, I think it's fine, because not everybody goes to college. Um, and uh, so from that perspective, uh, the next generation, I think, is looking to field and create the next farm team of future leaders, elected officials, party operatives. Um, you don't always have to be an elected official to make a difference. In fact, I find uh, now that I've been more so behind the scenes than anything else, that uh, you're able to pull the strings and get real things done to make a difference uh, more often than if you're you know, holding elected office and you know, you're concerned about many other things in the process of being in those roles. And so, um, they're thinking about the platform of the party. They're thinking about uh, how to represent that platform. They're thinking about how to present themselves in a way that's uh, exciting and interesting uh, for voters. And also, uh, I mean, it seems as if these organizations are still very prominent within the party apparatus and, and that people who are coming up in those ranks are then finding a way to navigate their way into roles within their state uh, legislature or their state government or their state party or they're taking jobs uh, working for uh, different people. And I think that um, especially in Washington and, and especially after this election cycle, there are a lot of people that are, that are interested in, in gearing up and, and working with young people um, on college campuses. Uh, maybe that's more so the college Republicans, but I think even the young Republicans um, are looking to find a way to be a part of the conversation that is now happening on how we rebuild and grow this party. And I'm excited to see that they're being included in that conversation. All right, so now we're going to move to our final section, uh, which is called the lightning round. So three quick questions, three quick answers. You can maybe yes or no, and, and maybe one reason why. Um, sure. So the first question is, will Andrew Yang win mayor of New York's race? Yes, I think that he's doing well in the, in the polls right now, and it seems like uh, as long as he maintains that momentum, he'll probably win. Awesome. Uh, number two, and this is for um, all of the electoral junkies that listen in. Uh, if you could only do one of these two things for the rest of your political career, would you rather knock on doors or phone bank? Knock on doors. Uh, you get real interactions with real people, and it's more effective. Uh, it's like 10 to 1 ratio on effectiveness, in my opinion, if not higher than that. And I like people. You get me up really interesting people at the doors. On the phones, they uh, are, are kind of skeptical at first. And then, you know, sometimes you don't even get a chance to really talk to them. So, All right. Final question. You've worked all over the country. What is your favorite region of the country in which you've worked? That's such a tough question. Well, I love Michigan. Very loyal to my home state. And I always like going home for political work. I got a chance to go to Alaska this past election cycle. And I never thought I would get a chance to go to Alaska specifically to Anchorage, to have the opportunity to do political work, because Alaska is not usually in the realm of, you know, battleground states necessarily, but uh, the RNC did invest in the uh, Alaska operation this past election cycle. They did have a state director there because Senator Sullivan is running for re-election, and also the Alaska State House was fighting to keep their majority. And uh, I was able to supplement the work that was being done up there, and I went up to Alaska for a week, which is a beautiful experience to go to what was almost like a whole different country to an extent, but really, you know, obviously a part of the United States and, and, you know, being the 49th state, I mean, there's a lot of pride in that and you get off of 
the, you know, you get off your flight and you walk around in the airport and you'll see like this big moose that was killed by somebody who donated it and actually ended up later finding out that it was a friend of mine's like father or something. And it's a very, and then that, that's when I realized that Anchorage is a very small big town uh, where everybody tends to know each other, but there's still like 300,000 people that live in Anchorage. A lot of people don't realize that. So it was a great experience to go up to a place like that. And, uh, you know, I'm very grateful that politics took me into Alaska. That's a crazy story. Thank you so much for joining us, Adi. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. We hope you listen in again next time when we interview geopolitics fellow and cybersecurity expert, Sarah Sendak. Before you go, make sure you follow us on social media at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And as always, you can email us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. See you next week.